Welcome to the Fresh Lens Podcast, where we read books and discuss ideas that change the way we see the world. I'm Trish Vino. And I'm Hirad Motamid. And we are your hosts. Welcome, listeners. We have a very special episode today, an interview with Dr. Sheeran Kalyan. We wanted to talk to Dr. Kalyan about COVID-19, Canada's COVID policies, and what the science says about moving forward during this pandemic. Dr. Kalyan is a Vancouver-based translational immunologist. She's an adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia and the vice president of scientific innovation and immunotherapeutics at a local biotech company. She earned her PhD from UBC in experimental medicine and was awarded an Alexander von Humboldt Fellowship to study at the Institute of Immunology in Germany. Dr. Kalyan's primary interest and expertise are in improving the efficacy and safety of therapies targeting immune dysfunction and determining how to harness the innate immune system to support recovery from disease. She is a font of information, and she covers a lot of ground in this interview. So we've done our best to link to some of the studies mentioned in the episode in the show notes below, as well as when she testified before the House Standing Committee on Health. It's also worth mentioning that the COVID situation changes and evolves rapidly, but we recorded this episode before some of the most recent developments, like the new variant Omicron. You can follow more of Dr. Callion on Twitter at tolling underscore bell. And of course, this is not medical advice. It's presented for informational and educational purposes only. So please strap in and enjoy the interview. Welcome to the Fresh Lens Podcast, where we read books and discuss ideas that change the way we see the world. I'm Trish Vino. And I'm Hirad Motamid. And we are your hosts. Welcome, listeners, to uh, a special episode of the Fresh Lens Podcast. We're joined today by Dr. Shirin Kalyan from the University of British Columbia. Dr. Kalyan, maybe for listeners, you can give you, give an introduction about yourself, and we'll get into the topic of the day. So yeah, I'm an immunologist. My focus is really on optimizing immune function, starting with the innate immune system. And uh, so I'd, my doctorate was in experimental medicine from the University of British Columbia in immunology. Subsequently received an Alexander von Humboldt fellowship to go to Germany for three years where I did my postdoc. I came back from my faculty position at the Faculty of Medicine at UBC, but I was really inspired by the work of Dr. Hal Gunn, who is developing biologics, bugs as drugs approach to restore innate immune function in people. So I've now um, transitioned to actually leading the science at uh, a BC-based biotech company that's actually doing trials in patients with Crohn's disease and cancer to restore immune function. So I'm really, my whole focus is really around restoring and optimizing immune function in, in people. So that's how I got involved a little bit on the COVID front, primarily because the approach and understanding of the therapeutics that we're using right now seem to, the science around that is still evolving and uh, we don't really understand how it affects the immune system. And that's where a lot of questions have arisen and, and I've been involved in trying to figure that out as, as the pandemic rolls on. 
Yeah, and for listeners, I think that's a bit of good background of how we end up connecting because with the way that things are going in Canada, basically around August, we, at least in British Columbia, where all of us are, we started implementing some more stringent measures than we had before, mostly in terms of mandatory vaccinations or or implementation of a vaccine passport that makes it difficult for people who are unvaccinated to to essentially function in society. And a lot, a lot of activities are kind of closed off to them at this point. And what was interesting to me at the time that all of these policies came in was that something like 87% of the eligible population in BC had already received at least one shot of of one of these mRNA vaccines that we have. And so it was kind of strange that at 87%, we were still kind of dealing with things. And the question that came up in my mind was, is that last 13% really going to be the thing that makes the difference between, you know, we put this pandemic behind us versus not, right? So I think digging into that story and figuring out what is our way out is kind of what motivated me and a friend of mine to connect with you. And uh, that's how this episode came to be, right? Yeah. So I guess just to kind of lay out a bit of a background, when when the pandemic first happened, there were a couple of different countries took a few different approaches. For some, they started pursuing a zero COVID policy. And in a few cases, that seems to have worked for them. I think New Zealand has managed to pull that off. But for the most part, do you agree with this notion that COVID zero is off the table at this point? Do we actually have a chance of making this go away and going back to 2019 and living in a world that does not have COVID in it? No, I think the consensus around that is COVID is going to be a part of our lives uh, moving forward, just like the flu is and the common cold is. We didn't have any immunity and we didn't know much about how COVID functions. So typically what happens with a virus um, as it becomes part of the virome of, of society is really in order for it to survive, if you recall SARS-1, it went away because it caused severe disease, right? And you knew you were sick, you stayed put, and it was easy. Like same with Ebola, those really terrible infections are actually really more we're able to implement a zero strategy around those because we can capture it. The viruses that become very easily transmissible, and that is allowed when it actually doesn't cause severe disease in the vast majority of people. I just read a study, it was actually put out by the CDC saying, who is the one who ends up in the hospital? Who are the ones who die of it? Apart from age, which is like the, the biggest risk factor, is people with obesity and anxiety-related disorders. And our response to the pandemic actually increased both those things. So we're actually making the virus worse, the infection worse in people in the way we have managed it. Anxiety and fear-related disorders is an independent risk factor of mortality with COVID-19. And that's all I see around. I have had a lot of people reach out to me and they're the fear is mismatched from the risk of the disease, in right. my opinion, at this time. And I think that that approach in North America, as opposed to some of these, like if you look at Sweden, everyone was, you know, was uh, canceling out Sweden. You know, we were we were calling them every name in the book with their herd immunity concept and everything. They're actually doing far better than we are right now. Their biggest their their biggest loss was actually 
around the the time when they refused to do the lockdowns that we did. And that's when they had, and I have a beautiful graph that shows that most of their mortality, and it was in people, the majority of those were in people over 70, they took a big hit. But if you look out after the vaccine rollout and everything else that has been done, they've been below Canada in cases and deaths. And nobody's speaking about that right now. Okay, so we said, okay, COVID zero is, is not on the table. So then the next concern that we should have is about overwhelming the hospital system, right? And this was the first, the very first concern when this pandemic hit the scene with kind of flattening the curve. Because once the hospital system gets overwhelmed, then you have this cascading effect of if you have a car accident, you can't get the health care that you need. So it'll kind of go into a lot of different areas. So our policy seems to be that we need to get everyone vaccinated. And by everyone, you know, when that number that I gave before was in August, it was 87% of the eligible population. But of course, eligibility was not extended to everybody because it, the vaccine hasn't been approved for, for children. At least it wasn't at that time. And, uh, and so the goal, what we seem to be driving towards is let's get 100% of the population vaccinated or as close to that as we possibly can, right? And the question in my mind is, given what we know about these vaccines, if 100% of the population was vaccinated, is the pandemic behind us? Well, epidemiologically, it's really interesting that the percentage of mRNA vaxxed people in a population is positively correlated with cases. So this is, and the, the bad part about it is that the vaccines are less effective in people who need the protection the most. So the older people, they said frail men who are elderly, who, or if you have an underlying condition, i.e. the people who are most likely to have a bad outcome with COVID, the vaccines work suboptimally. So right now in BC, the last account was in the elderly population, you know, more than half, about half of them were already vaccinated. There were fully vaccinated people who died. All these outbreaks, because we're not acknowledging transmission occurs very readily. So, you know, people who have been vaccinated, especially at around the three time points. So we don't know. I think it's really important that we acknowledge what we know and what we don't know about the vaccine. So we, what we know at about the three month time point that your ability to prevent transmission if you've been fully vaxxed is not very good. You're more likely to transmit. There was a study that just came out that was reported on on The Guardian. Uh, and it was a fairly large study that showed, and I have to say the UK, you know, the UK scientists are really doing a fantastic job with collecting the data. I think one of our biggest, if there's one thing we can improve is data collection here in Canada and making that transparent and making it available so we can make evidence-based decisions. But what they found is that the biggest place where transmission actually occurs in households, and they said there was no difference between those who are vaccinated and unvaccinated in transmitting to the disease in, within the household. So I thought, wow, they, you know, because what we hear on TV all the time when we see those health public health professionals come on and say, we're, it's the biggest, it's our best way of preventing transmission and infection. And this is, and that's the rationale for the mandates, right? So if it's not doing that job and the World Health Organization actually has come out and put out a statement saying they have a PDF that says they are against COVID-19 vaccine mandates, that, you know, using this kind of overreaching policy, health policy, you really have to define what the purpose is. And, you know, when when is the end 
point for for these vaccine mandates. Now, if you're gone on to multiple booster shots without doing any trials for the long-term safety and efficacy, these are, we call them vaccines, but they're actually nucleic acid delivery platforms. They're not your traditional vaccine. So when people say, oh, we've mandated vaccines for, you know, we eradicated smallpox, we have, you know, measles and all these things. These are, those are actually microbial based. They mimic an infection. Those live attenuated bugs are mimicking infection. And that's why they're sterile, immunity that's sterilizing. You don't spread the disease. You need one shot. It's really effective. And we know the long term, it's undergone a lot of rigorous testing. We've used that kind of technology for hundreds of years now. During this pandemic is the first time we've used this nucleic acid delivery platform. And and then we called them vaccines. Original definition of vaccine did not include this platform, but now it, we've changed that. And we because it's never been used outside of emergency use authorization prior to this pandemic, we have very little clinical experience with these vaccines. And I think that we've been pushing these out without understanding, you know, we heard before, you know, the first vaccine you get is the best vaccine. And then we saw AstraZeneca sort of disappear from that without any kind of explanation. And then we saw Moderna being like questioned with the myocarditis and pericarditis risk. It's been put on pause in other parts or completely, you know, taken off the shelf in, in places like Iceland. But we don't even talk about that. We're not talking about the safety. We're like saying, oh, these are the safest things, you know, you can just like you're drinking water. And we that is not true. We don't know what we haven't had long enough follow up. And especially in children where the risk benefit ratio, and this is what we need, we need, need risk stratification. And so we're not we're ignoring natural immunity. So these overreaching, irrational way of approaching, you know, and then giving multiple booster shots, we don't know when it ends. It doesn't really make sense to me. We should, the first thing I would do is really diversify our portfolio of the type of vaccines we have. And that way people would feel a little bit more comfortable, perhaps, of, of getting vaccinated, those 15% holdout, whatever they call. Even people who've already had one or two shots of this one, and they saying, well, I can't go in for a, like, getting a boost is not sustainable every four months you go in for you don't know what the consequence of that is you know against one antigen and that's what really helps select for a certain like delta is became really prevalent in really highly vaccinated places because people who have been vaccinated do not contain it effectively to prevent transmission so that's uh you know those are my thoughts around the the current vaccines we're learning a lot i think it's a very promising technology but we we're not at a place where we can say you have to take this and everyone needs to take it especially since they're the full information to get proper informed consent you really need to have sufficient data and the fda this was written about in the the british medical journal which has been really a fantastic resource in in breaking it down and opening up the transparency they recently i think it was just a couple of days ago reported on the the issues with the phase 3 trial of the Pfizer vaccine where they said that there was a problem with data integrity and the way that the phase 3 trial was conducted and that's the the basis of what the FDA gave full approval of without actually knowing the biodistribution aspect of the vaccine we don't know where it goes and how it's presented to the immune system how it actually what type of immune response it's triggered especially after multiple booster shots and children have a very you know their immune system is getting educated when you're young so we shouldn't be playing around with something we don't really fully understand for a young 
immune system that really is learning how to differentiate self from non-self and, you know, learning how to deal with infectious threats. I was given an opportunity to testify in front of the House of Commons Standing Committee on Health. And I said, you know, you really should be using live attenuated vaccines in young kids. That gives it a good exercise without risk of, you know, severe disease. And that's the type of training that engages the entire immune system and puts it all on the same page. So it knows how to function optimally. It's actually the best kind of vaccine that you can give kids. It's not being an anti-vaxxer or COVID minimizer. It's being really evidence-based. I have a question, if I might, because one of the things that I found really confusing when, you know, I don't have a degree in science or anything, and I'm trying to wade through the data is what immunity looks like. So some studies, you know, will say that vaccine immunity is much better than natural immunity. And some studies will seem to say the opposite. And some people are measuring, you know, like antibodies that you might have so many months out. So can you help sort of demystify how what we call like having immunity to COVID and what someone who understands the immune system so much more as you do could help yeah. us lay people understand that? I think the that, CDC that, actually just put yeah. something out saying uh, vaccine immunity is much stronger than natural immunity, which I think without knowing, without having gathered any data for me, like just on a theoretical basis, that raises an eyebrow, right? So I'm kind of curious to see like, what your take on it is. Yeah, I have actually written, I'll be happy to share with you. There are over 100 studies speaking to the natural immunity aspect of it. And that's been one of the most frustrating things that there is this misinformation about what natural immunity actually constitutes. So you when you... there. There's multiple, not only the durability and the broad spectrum nature of what we call quote unquote natural immune. This is the first time I'm actually using, you know, before we just called it immune. You're, you're immune. And when the first vaccines, the really effective one, the live attenuated vaccines were actually built on observing when someone got sick and recovered, wow, they were, they were much better protected. Those are the people we actually hired to take care of people who got sick with the disease. You know, it was those people who got natural immunity and they won't go around spreading the disease anymore because they're immune and they have sterilizing immunity. And that is really important because when you actually get, for example, a respiratory infection, you get it uh, through the same route of administration, the natural route through your nose, and your immune system becomes really uh, potent there in your lungs. You have long-lived T cells and B cells, and even your innate immune system has a type of memory called trained innate immunity. And that was originally really important because you know old school vaccines that train the innate immune system, we found that kids who had, like for example, the BCG vaccine originally, they were protected not only against TB, which was what BCG uh, was trying to protect uh, children against, but against a broad range of immune pathologies, because it's sort of like an exercising type of the you know, muscle almost in your immune system. So they were very, it becomes a lot more efficient. And so when you get, get that natural immunity that is very similar to live attenuated uh, vaccines, it, pro- it provides protection on multiple layers of the immune system and they're all on the same page. And it provides that long lived immunity. Studies have shown that long lived B cells, even from SARS 1, people that was like, I don't know, 13 years ago or something like that, they still have those memory B cells in their bone marrow that can respond more effectively even to SARS 2 here. And so there is no question that natural immunity, that's what the basis of vaccination really was. We were trying to harness that without actually 
getting people sick. Now, if you look at what we're doing now with the single antigen thing, that doesn't activate all those components of it. That's why there's no, your immune system as such, it needs confirmation from multiple sources, right? It says if the innate immune system say, hey, this is a bug, this is a virus, this is a problem, it provides that co-activation that leads to affinity maturation of what we call, you know, this broad spectrum antibody protection, as well as your T cells that help to the B cells to provide that long-lived immunity. So all, that's why it's so potent. That's why it lives for so long. And the best thing, you, your immune system has a certain amount of resources. So if it's something that becomes common in a society and you get exposed to that antigen, you keep evoking that memory and it gets stronger and stronger each time, right? That's why I think leave the people who have recovered from COVID alone. There's a 27-fold better immunity in people who had natural infection in Israel. And they actually collected data really thoroughly and and it's quite transparent, their database. We don't have that here for whatever reason. And they had an eightfold uh, reduction in hospitalization compared to fully vaccinated people. And so that to me really underscores, and that's one of a hundred different studies that have spoken to the natural immunity concept. And so we're not, we're not stratifying, we're, we're treating everyone the same way. One of the concepts around the natural immunity questions was because you know, antiviral immunity is actually, it's a, it's a type of, it's not all antibodies. It's actually T cells. And then you have natural killer cells and the, the kids they, they found or people with very mild or asymptomatic disease didn't seem to develop very much antibodies. And they were like saying, oh, this, this means that their, their memory is not so good or their immunity is not so good. But there was a beautiful paper. I, I don't want to misquote. I don't know if it was in Cell, but it was one of those top-notch articles where they actually followed kids and their families. And they, they noted the reason why kids are so asymptomatic is their innate immune system is so efficient. But it didn't compromise their T cell or B cell responses at all. So that was, it's just that uh, they're better at uh, that containing it. And that's an initial response was just so potent that it retained it at a very local level. And so that was the, and they had, you know, long-term B cells and T cell responses that were still functional. And I think that's the key thing. You can't actually get rid of an infection and not get memory from that. And so that the there's this fight against you know you know natural immunity is not a thing is the first time I've ever heard <laughs> this thing because we're we're trying to with vaccination that's what we're trying to achieve is that memory right and so and it would be far you know longer lived than four months <laughs> so and just just out of curiosity th- even theoretically is it ever possible to have a virus that we can have a vaccine for that would give you a better immunity than what you would get if you just contracted the virus, assuming you didn't die from it. Right. So that's the, that's the rationale. Like if, if you don't die for it, like if it was a fatal disease, then I would for sure, you know, say, let's go for the vaccine. Right. But I can't really, I don't have an example that I can think of. I know, for example, the polio vaccine, you, you know, you didn't do well <laughs> with getting the actual disease, but the polio vaccine was much more preferable in its immunity, but it was also like a live attenuated type. It was mimicking uh, natural. So when the disease doesn't causes more damage, even if you get memory, then I would say, you know, those are the examples where the vaccine definitely would provide the better long-term health outcome. 
but I'm just talking about uh, this the, the notion immune that the immune yeah. response. It just seems like the idea of what a vaccine is. It, like you said, it's based on your body's immune response. So I think this notion that we are going to cook something up in a lab, whatever it is, that is going to give you a better immune response than yours. And I just it doesn't really make sense to me. Yeah, like I can't think of you know there might be people in the the audience who who and there there are people I have to say that have a different opinion because I hear it all the time. I have a very different opinion on you know a whole organism fighting that host pathogen interaction trains all aspects of the immune system. So some people might say, oh, your antibody responses after vaccination are so high, but is that does that mean that your immunity? Uh, is so high against this pathogen. And this is where I sort of, you know, diverge in my opinion of things. Like having high levels of serum antibodies for a respiratory infection doesn't necessarily, what it means is that if it ever, if you're older and your your the infection goes bloodstream, then that would be really good protection because you have neutralizing uh, antibodies against it. But it doesn't mean that you have better immunity. Better immunity is like containing it <laughs> at the at the point of infection, right? And so that's why it's not a sterilizing. Most when we one of the things I've been trying. This is a little bit of a segue. One of the things I've been hoping we would have in BC is like a lot of people have been. We've not been exposed to many respiratory infections because of the you know lockdown and everyone's wearing masks. And now it's flu season. It's RSV season. All these colds are coming around. The best thing you could actually do, and we couldn't find it anywhere, is to get that live attenuated intranasal flu vaccine, flu mist. It's not available anyway. If I was leading the healthcare policy, I would like say, everyone, you would be protected a little bit against even serious COVID. You're priming your innate immune system in your mucosal area. You would be protecting yourself against the flu or any other respiratory thing because you're, that aspect has not been well exercised. It's like, you know, you're trying to run a marathon and you haven't even gone out for a jog. <laughs> so I'm like saying, this is what we should, if you're really thinking physiologically and immunologically, you would be taking that flu mist thing and providing that to everyone and you would prevent the serious morbidity. But that's like they're giving for adults, they're giving the shot again. They're giving a systemic immune response. It's not through the the general way of how you get infected by these things. So, you know, I think that there is a little bit of disconnect from understanding the immunological concepts and the way health policy is actually delivered. And I, I think that if it made more sense and if they were more rational and evidence-based, they would have greater uptake and trust in the management because a lot of people are looking at it and saying, you know, it doesn't make sense. For sure. I think we'll probably be paying for that far longer than we'll be dealing with COVID. You said a lot of things that I kind of want to double click into. So just as a as a way of analogy for for the listeners, this idea that we have vaccines are safe, this is a talking point that a lot of people use is vaccines are safe because we've been using them for hundreds of years and you know we have eradicated all sorts of bad diseases using vaccination so why are you against it to kind of put what you just said in different language that's kind of like saying sports as one word encapsulates everything from cricket to american football and it's like saying cricket and american football are the same thing right this mrna technology that we're using right now is fundamentally different uh, in how it it elicits an immune response than everything else that we've used in the past. Is that right? Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Okay. 
And so why are these vaccines not solving the problem at the moment? What do we know? You mentioned the fact that there is waning immunity. We know that a couple of months after vaccination, they're definitely not stopping transmission. And But are they stopping hospitalization? Is immunity against severe illness waning? Do we have any data on that? So that's really, that's an excellent question. So, and this is where the risk stratification really comes um, into play. So it seems like, and I was just reading the latest on the Lancet, they have a preprint of a really large, it included 1.6 million people from Sweden. Sweden is one of those countries, they have really, we don't have a control group anymore. So we, because this is the real problem, not only do we not collect data, but we have completely messed up any kind of control group. So it's it's hard to say, you know, use the data that, that we're producing here, just the way it's been collected and managed. But here, what I hear con- consistently is that uh, serious disease, at least up to the first six months and potentially up to eight and nine months and mortality is significantly protected with with the vaccines that we're using right now in at-risk populations. But the the data I was just reading uh, from the Sweden study that's looked at it longer and they have a really good control group. And I think the, the caveat there, and they didn't mention it because Sweden might not be the most optimal. They were looking at vaccinated and unvaccinated populations. And they found that after six months, those people who are older, males and who are frail, there really wasn't as much protection uh, against severe disease and, and death than has been reported previously. Now, I think the problem with that study was largely because they didn't account for natural immunity that might be present in their population by that time. So if you've you've already had it, we know you're not gonna you're not gonna be hospitalized and you're you're probably not going to die. And that's why that that comparison lost significance down the line later on in their population. They didn't seem to have accounted for that concept. So we actually need, if we're really gonna uh, understand this effectiveness, we really need to break it down not only by risk of death and hospitalization, because apparently in those who are most likely to die, um, the efficacy is much, much lower than the 90%. And and there might be, the biggest benefit might be for people under 60. And so they have very minute, this is where we need to look at not relative risk, but absolute risk. Like what is the percentage of actual, is it one, 2%, you know, that's the, the diff, that's the actual number that we're never given. You know, if, if like, two people died with who are fully vaccinated versus four, they would say, oh, that's a 50%. But they're not saying it's the difference is 2%. Uh, so that's the difference between absolute risk and the relative risk. Because in in young people, especially those with no com- comorbidities, death is very, it's a very, 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 very small a number of people. And it goes down significantly with, with age. So when we're looking at, you know, the reduction in serious severity, it definitely helps in the first few months for people who are at risk, but we don't know. Uh, and this is the, the problem. We don't know how long, how durable that immunity is. And the short live you know, the, the, the short life of this immunity is I've never really, uh, seen it before, like 
I, I think this is this is where the science is still evolving. We don't know how long it lasts. What happens when you give multiple booster shots? Do you get maybe you get you know like when you get desensitized to certain antigens? We don't know what what is the consequence of this constant boosting with this technology. So I want to dig into something you just said. Typical vaccines that we have used in the past, they you know, that's, it's a weakened form of the virus and your body essentially learns the virus's genetic code, so to speak, and kind of stores it away and knows what to look for in the future in case it encounters that virus again. With the mRNA vaccines, we're injecting the genetic code for one part of the, the SARS-CoV-2, which is the genetic material for the spike protein. We're relying on the body to pr- use that to create its own copy of the spike protein, then your immune system is responding to that, right? So no matter how many of these shots you get, your immune system is ever only learning to respond to the spike protein of the virus. And my understanding of this is a few different risks come from this. One, it's actually because it's such a small surface area of defense, a mutation in the spike protein could essentially nullify the immune response. I didn't understand the second part of what you said about having so many of your antibodies kind of targeting this one spike protein. If you could elaborate on that, that'd be great. Yeah, so we keep expanding our memory of this. Like each time we give it, you generate, you know, you have a bloom of these antibodies because they, they're reseeing it again. So they think this this foreign thing is again in our in our serum. The messaging, the instruction of what that means is unclear to the immune system from what what my reading is. Every bug has a type of programming and it elicits a certain type of strategy from the immune system. So your antiviral immune response is pretty different from an antiparasitic response, which is different from an antifungal response because there are different types of pathogens and the immune system has different strategies and different cells that are mobilized against it. Now, in this mRNA thing, where is that instruction? There is no instruction. Like, And what's interesting, it's not actually activating those evolutionarily conserved pathways, which you know, for Im- immunologists out there know as like toll-like receptor pathways or pattern recognition pathways that uh, go through a certain signaling pathway that activates a certain type of strategy and immune memory. This seems to bypass and is generating a large amount of antibodies. There seems to be, from my reading, there are certain types of T follicular cells and B cells that are are generated, but it's not of the same type of activation pathway that you would normally get from a virus, for example. So we're generating a large number of antibodies through an a pathway that's not usually used for antiviral immunity, and we keep boosting that over and over again. And because of the way these antibodies are generated and the programming it's going through, we don't know, at least I don't know, what the long-term boosting of the same type of antibodies, would you get class switching and some, all of a sudden it'll say, oh, this is, you know, when we get exposed to, for example, if you eat a lot of garlic, and you, you're going to have antibodies, gar- garlic, but they're not anti-infectious, right? They're, they're sort of like saying, oh, this is not a problem. We see it all the time. You become tolerized to it in a, in a way. So my question is, in certain people, certain, and everyone's immune system is programmed, you know, through your life experience epigenetically you 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 respond differently like you know one person would dif- respond very differently to certain things and so in some 
people. I'm wondering whether you would even with multiple and de- even depending on they don't have clarity on when the timing of these booster shots should be. You know, if if they're giving it too soon, I think this is one of the problems. If you give it too soon, you might not have a very good response. It might be something that, you know, there's a lot of antibody production happening, but, you know, I don't see where the infection is. Your body can sense infection when it's there. So it's sort of like, oh, I'm being psyched out. There's nothing happening here. And so there, there are a lot of questions that remain unknown. And having a large amount of antibodies, your body doesn't like that to one thing that is not seeming to be causing any problems in the body. It might just switch that off and say, hey, Maybe we shouldn't be making so much antibodies against this thing. And so we don't, we haven't done long-term studies. This is the first time we're using it. That's why the science keeps evolving. You know, should we be mixing and matching? What should be the timing? This is like typically done by a clinical trial. Like you, you have this figured out. Now, I'm not saying in the middle of a pandemic, you know, I'm not against new concepts and everything, but really don't, you don't put get this 90% of your population, this is where all your eggs are in this basket. Why aren't we going? Why are we getting those inactivated, well-adjuvanted, old-school vaccines into the mix, right? At least then you'll have different antigens that are recognized. The problem really is having a population with only one type of immunity. <laughs> That's what causes this this spread and mutations and selection for more viral and transmissible strains of the virus. Can I ask a question about the vaccines? When I went to go get my second dose in BC, the policy was you just show up and you take whichever one they give you. And for a while, they actually weren't even telling you until you like got in the chair and were about to get the jab. I remember what they would say to you was your immune system doesn't care about brand names. And so like with the <laughs> implication being that like, you know, it's all coming from the same factory and they might slap a Pfizer on the outside or a Moderna label on the outside, but that they were all the same thing. But I don't think that's true, that they're all the same thing. And like, this must be a nightmare for people who are trying to study, you know, which and mixing and matching. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts around how we are just like people are getting kind of the gambit? And yeah, that is it's been one of those the real big failures, I think, of public health was the the misinformation and the lack of correction later on. There's a difference in the risk factor, but also the efficacy on the other hand. So because of the the more potent response that people with who have the Pfizer vaccine actually lose efficacy or this infection prevention of infection faster actually than the Moderna and you know and as I mentioned AstraZeneca was was taken right out of the uh, pool that's available now and all those steps were not taken first by Canada it was taken by other countries and then we sort of like, we always follow. And I think we have to stop following for whatever reason. We need to have better better data tracking and we need more transparency. So you need to explain so you don't lose trust. People don't know, you know, say, well, I, I was listening to the news and, you know, they randomly pick people on the streets and they said, oh, are you getting your booster shot? Third booster shot in, in those who are uh, available. And this woman said, well, I got my AstraZeneca. I don't know if I should get, you know, my, my vaccine is no longer available. Given, you know, and I just realized when I listened to her at that time that they haven't really, I'm on top of because I'm following, of course, I know that they're mixing and matching all kinds of things all over the place. And, and I realized that I didn't really communicate to people, you know, where, where, where was their decision coming from? What was the evidence that they're basing their recommendations on? I think 
a lot of that is not being conveyed clearly. It's just like they go into their room, decide what they're going to do and come out and just tell you this without any kind of explanation. And I think this is the wrong strategy because people are not understanding what the heck is happening. And so I think that is problematic because the better informed people are, then the better the outcome is going to be for for the overall health. They need to be able to figure it out. The fact that none of the life, like, you know, it still annoys me because I remember someone had told me they were listening to the Minister of Health at that time and this whole concept around vitamin D supplementation. Now, there are a lot of observational studies. Like, we know vitamin D affects immune function, you know, even in chronic disease, uh, prevention of some autoimmune disorders. And there seems to be a relationship also with COVID outcomes. Now, it doesn't, it never hurts anyone. Like you're just, but to call it fake news or like <laughs> not a thing, just like natural immunity, they're taking all of those things that would actually help people stay healthy overall, saying, you know, go and play sports outside, go, you know, live the, be as healthy as you can, because in doing so, your, your risk of severe COVID is going to get minimized. So I think that has been an issue of public health, this, this clear information and what they're basing the evidence on and sort of pretending all of this. And it might be, the scary thing might be that they actually don't know the difference of of how these mRNA vaccines work. Because I remember when I'd given my testimony, I had actually told them in June that the AstraZeneca is, is you know, when you have a viral vector, what's going to happen the second time you give it is because you're, you were developing antibodies against the vector, you're going to wipe that out. So the efficiency of a booster shot is not going to be very much. And now they're recognizing that those viral vectors didn't actually give you much immunity. And it was most likely because of the fact that you have developed antibodies against the vector. And that's why taking another type of vaccine like the mRNA would give you a better immunity than than the or, another viral adenovirus vectors because everyone's they're they're all using the same vector for everything. One of the frustrating things is exactly as you said that they were comparing it to traditional vaccines. And that I think is really the biggest misinformation out there because people are going around saying, you know, you're we've done this for, you know, all the time. They're not recognizing this is a platform we you have so little experience using it. Can't you see all the missteps that we've taken? Like we're just figuring it out while, you know, we're making up the, the decisions as we go without really good evidence. And because we're doing that, it's fine if, you, if you're, we're in the middle of a pandemic, we don't have the luxury of time. I get it. But you don't go ahead and mandate something that you don't understand completely, especially when there are other options available. Like Covaxin has got available. We have Novavax, Valneva's whole inactivated vaccine with a beautiful Ajavan that uh, stimulates antiviral immunity. Why are we bringing that on and, and helping at least the younger people who have have clear safety signals there? Why aren't you making that available to other people? And you might not need so many booster shots after these. So perfect. So those two, the last two things you said are great segues into what I wanted to go next. We've heard a lot about you know, these vaccines are safe and effective, and why are more people not going to take it? So with regards to the mRNA vaccines that we have available today, some people are uncomfortable taking them, partly because they are so new, they have only been approved under emergency use authorization. And uh, people are kind of afraid of having some kind of medical intervention that is not fully vetted. Do you think 
some degree of concern around mRNA vaccines is justified. And based on what we know today, where do you think the uh, risk is that would justify taking uh, the mRNA vaccine in, in terms of who should be taking it and who shouldn't be? Or should it be everyone because there really isn't any good justification to be concerned? Yeah, so we are hearing the narrative in the public is the latter, right? That these are the the safest and most effective things that you could be taking. The the adverse event reporting system in the states suggests otherwise, and the reports out of Israel suggest otherwise. They're actually take, telling people not to exercise after getting for at least four weeks, especially young men. I think the problem really is from my perspective, is the the biodistribution data. Like we, if we don't understand, if it's a little bit of a, you Can know. Can you explain what biodistribution data means? Yeah, good call. So biodistribution, and I think it's important, particularly for this kind of technology, is after you inject it, where does that go? Which cells does it enter? And which cells are making that mRNA thing? Ideally, if you want a good immune response, you don't want it to be your heart cells. You don't want it to be on your nervous cells because you're launching an immune response against this, right? You want professional antigen, what we call antigen presenting cells. We want your, you know, things like dendritic cells or your monocytes, uh, and they can coordinate a better immune response and memory. But because this is sort of, I tried to find some of the biodistribution studies that haven't been able to find any for the actual mRNA vaccines that we're using for protein. But I did find like long time ago, I won't say that long, in 2019, 2018, before the pandemic, which seems like it's decades ago now, there were a lot of biodistribution studies and actually papers describing some of the hurdles of using them in vivo in people. And one of them is like, you can't really control where it's going. It seems like a lot of it uh, went to your liver. So these were pre-pandemic biodistribution data on what? In, in animals, time? in animals, because they've been trying to develop, like these types of technologies have been in development for a long, pretty long so time. So the, the, the ones that you're talking about are also about mRNA vaccines, but or mRNA technology, but it was pre-pandemic. Pre-pandemic, exactly. Right. In like around 2018, a lot of these studies came out down and they were actually looking for liver disorders because it goes nicely to the liver, but it's hard to to get it to go exactly where you want it to go. And, you know, by fluke, if you can see it goes somewhere else, it might not end up so well. So maybe there's even a different biodistribution depending on your physiology, right? Like it seems like young men, and I don't know why it's young men in particular. What is about young men that makes them more susceptible to this myocarditis, pericarditis thing? At a fairly high, like the, the incidence, we're not, we're looking at actually symptoms. They're going to be subclinical aspects that we're not actually looking for. And we should be looking for, you know, what is doing follow-up because maybe those people who are not as active are still getting that heart damage, but it's not as symptomatic because they haven't stressed that system out, right? And in older people, you probably, the background noise, the number of older men with heart disease is so high that noise to, um, you know, signal ratio may be quite it's not high enough to actually see it, even if though it's occurring, right? Because they always do it through the background noise. And because it's so low in in uh, young people that you can actually see, oh, wow, like, you know, this is causing a lot of problems, especially when the system is stressed. So that's what biodistribution is essentially where it's going and how it's being made and which cells are making it and how it's being presented uh, to the immune system. That's just basic. 
we would need that information before you get drug approval, especially for a new technology that's depending on expression of a of a protein. And that was one of the things, there was a petition by, you know, a number of people, and this was published in the British Medical Journal before the FDA's approval. They said, we need at minimum this biodistribution thing. We need two-year follow-up of pivotal trial for safety. These are just like, you know, basic things that you would want to have in place before you give full drug approval. And they went, because they wanted to put in the mandates, they overrode these, they expedited the approval before getting that necessary data. And and then after, it was also approved on efficacy data that later on, you know, they wanted a 50% efficacy and they reported on having over 90%. But that was within two months. Like if you look at six months, what's the efficacy? It's less than 50% for the Pfizer one. So this is the problem. It was based on data that was not only incomplete, but didn't stand the test of time over only six months. <laughs> so that that to me is like a big red flag. And this has been reported on. There is, you know, if you follow the, the editor of the British Medical Journal, he spoke on this very eloquently. And he's one of those people who is not afraid, you know, there is a lot of pushback for people who are in the medical community, in the scientific community, who are against the the narrative that is being put out in the public. And, and so that kind of censorship, especially when there were really well-regarded scientists who did epidemiological studies on myocarditis, and it was completely factual, they, you know, it was peer-reviewed. And the journal, which is published by Elsevier, actually put a the first time I saw it, they were saying that they're going to put a hold on it or, or something like that and, and take it down. It wasn't something that the data wasn't done right or the analysis was wrong. It just was not congruent with the messaging of the time. So that to me is really problematic when we don't have a good handle on what actually is the adverse effect profile, who is getting it. And so I do think that, you know, if it was the only option, right, to protect those people that we have identified, this pandemic has been going on for a couple of years. We know who gets seriously, you know, who gets hospitalized. We know we want to make sure, and if, if we were doing it things properly, we would explain to that population and say, "Look, you're really if you get this thing, and you're going to get it because it's so now it's going to be highly prevalent in the you you know you're better off being protected." And, you know, some people have even been floating around. Unfortunately, some people like Joe Rogan was the first person to suggest it. So now, you know, it's being dismissed because whoever (laughs) says it first, like if it came out of the wrong mouth at the first time, but it's been echoed by other time, you know, the concept, oh, you're, if you have some immunity to the vaccine and then you get exposed to it and actually get better immunity, like natural quote immunity, then, you know, that might be the best way because that's actually a sterilizing type of immunity. You're not going to have this cyclical thing where you're keeping this thing alive and prolonging the agony of, of this thing. You, you're you going to have somewhere like Sweden where their level of actual herd immunity is pretty high. There there are these concepts around where, you know, how we can make the transition into an open society less painful for people who haven't had COVID already and are petrified of it, you know, just saying, if you have some immunity through vaccines, you're going to likelihood, according to the messages, you're going to handle it a lot better than if, if you, you know, didn't have it. And those are the type, of, because we are going to, we can be sitting in our 
basements all the time and just waiting for this. It's it's uh, you're not going to get zero COVID. We need to diversify the different types of vaccines available. The young people are the biggest ones who don't have any vaccine immunity yet, but the the data is showing they're going to be just fine. And so I really hope that there's no mandates on on children, especially the way the phase three trial was done with Pfizer. <laughs> it was it was not a, to me a very rigorous or convincing trial with a couple of thousand kids with not actual endpoints because nobody really got sick nobody <laughs> got severe disease but what was interesting those with natural immunity had the you know had no infection whatsoever that that's what that trial had shown and and you wouldn't want to immunize a child who's already had covid so they would have to recognize because i think the risk factor is going to be a little bit worse you know in terms of severity of symptoms etc to the vaccine so so i'm hoping that the recognition you know immunological currency through infection is recognized in other parts of the world for whatever reason it is not in north america let's let's come back to looking at the evidence and then we'll have a better handle on the pandemic mm-hmm. moving forward do you think we should be concerned with how we the vaccination policy might be changing the selective pressure on the virus? Like, so I think Harad has could maybe state that question better. But yeah. I think this is a discussion Harad and I've had amongst each other, and I don't know Harad if you want to try and rephrase that better. Yeah. So there, there's there's a study I think I came across it. I think it's from 2015 or 2016 that basically showed in in a, in a lab setting. So obviously it's not about you know, diseases that are out in the wild, but in a situation where you have a, a population that is vaccinated against severe illness or death, but but vaccinated such that transmission is not stopped, which this is exactly the vaccines that we have today. <laughs> They're not stopping transmission, but they are stopping severe illness. That you're essentially creating an evolutionary selection pressure for more virulent st- strains of the virus, such that these strains when they meet an unvaccinated host, their impact is going to be much higher than they would be otherwise. So one kind of a picture that kind of formed in my head when I read that was we've essentially created a situation because evolutionarily speaking, as we, we talk on this podcast a lot about, we kind of started from the podcast from a evolutionary biology book club. So evolutionarily speaking, a virus, a new pathogen seems to have a selection pressure to not kill its host over time, right? So it might be extremely lethal when it arises, but over time, it kind of gets more and more mild because there is kind of a somewhat of a symbiotic relationship when the, the, the pathogen wants to keep its host alive to be able to reproduce and spread, right? So this is my understanding is that the pandemics we've had in the past have kind of become endemic through a combination of natural immunity and the lethality going down over time. And part of that is because they do kill a lot of their hosts overall, but you would expect that at some point a mutation will arise that will be less lethal and that will be more successful evolutionarily. And so that you'll kind of get that going. When you have a population that's already vaccinated, so people are not going to die from the the virus, that selection pressure is removed. So now there's no more incentive for the virus to be less lethal, which means that if you're unvaccinated, you're never going to get to that end point where you can, you'll get a virus that is just kind of mild, right? So 
I don't know, uh, this is kind of a theoretical mm -hmm. picture that based on that study and like a little bit of my evolutionary biology background, I've, I've kind of cooked up in my head. So yeah, I don't, I don't know if it actually makes any sense. That experiment, it was a very elegant study in which, and I believe it was, it was published in PLOS Biology, where they were actually using a bird flu and they called it imperfect vaccination such that transmission, it was sort of leaky, if you will. Transmission wasn't prevented, was suboptimal, but there was efficacy in severe disease. And it does ring, it has similarities to what we're, we're seeing with the platform vaccines that we are using for COVID-19 right now, at least in North America. We do see this, it, it's not really great at preventing transmission, but there is efficacy in preventing severe disease and or hospitalization. And I think that in the same countries, what has been noted is that, you know, cases are going up and hospitalizations, at least uh, up to this point, have been by far, especially proportionally, more in the unvaccinated group, which is very similar to what experiment in which they were testing this out in that chicken virus vaccine had showed that it was it made the disease worse for for those who didn't have immunity but it did protect those who had a vaccine acquired immunity and there there is we haven't really studied whether the same phenomenon uh, is occurring but there it certainly it strikes a a chord of of similarity when you're looking at what is happening across the globe where we may be selecting for variants that in a vaccinated group, of course, when especially when we have selected immunity on one part of the, the virus. So most of the vaccines are against the spike protein. So of course, we see that those mutations that occur in the general population are the ones that spread are going to be those ones that are selected for because of transmission is allowed amongst people with the same kind of immunity. So I, I don't think it's outside the realm of po uh, possibility that that's exactly what we will be seeing, especially when uh, the viral load, it seems, is, is as high in those what in what we call breakthrough infections, that they're as an unvaccinated person. What is interesting, though, however, and maybe that's the silver lining, is data from the Office of National statistics in the UK show people who have been previously infected, and it was found to be rare to be reinfected, but those who did get reinfected actually had very low viral loads, and their disease was very mild compared to the first more symptomatic sort of disease that they had when they were in their primary infection. So that is, to me, and that's what we would want um, to have that kind of immunity that is more, you contain it and you and you keep viral loads low. Because when you keep viral loads low, you're, you're uh, preventing the ability of the virus to uh, get all these mutations. And what we will see is that, you know, it is amongst those people with no immunity where you have higher viral loads where these mutations occur. And once they've occurred, the selection process and those that will be, they'll survive in a population that's highly either vaccinated or have a certain type of immunity would be those ones that can still spread amongst people with that kind of immunity. So if, if that makes sense. So I do, yeah, I do think that having a, a single target approach, this is essentially what we can sort of favor in terms of selection for variants. Right. Would it, 
I, I guess in, to my mind, it wouldn't really be that, that big of a deal if we could vaccinate everyone and transmission kept going. If everyone was vaccinated, you know, there wouldn't be this segment of the population that is disproportionately affected. But there's also the problem that several months after vaccination, you're basically like being unvaccinated. So we end up in this situation where we have to keep kicking the can down the road. Is that unreasonable to say or... No, that that does seem so. There is this this differential, and I think we're trying to understand because um, I think the science is, you know, I keep saying it. The science is still evolving around this platform. So we haven't had a lot of clinical experience with the type of vaccines we have. So it's really interesting that you know the the efficacy for infection significantly declines. Like let's say within six months of of getting your two shots, but what seems to hold and there is variability depending on your your demographic. If you're older and more frail, it might, it, that protection against severe disease may also decline. But in general, more, more healthy people, um, there is still this protective effect against severe or hospitalization with, with the vaccines. And to me, it's interesting why is that primarily through some antibody producing cells that are still around and can capture that outside. So understanding that phenomenon, what type of immunity is providing that protection would be important. But my question would be if 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 we have a really highly transmissible version of, and I think the Delta variant is is highly transmissible still amongst people who are also fully vaccinated, if once they get, you know, natural infection type immunity, whether we can sort of stop that, continue kicking the, the can down the road. And, and I think we have to do more studies. We need to be tracking, okay, people are, is, is the transmission going down in a population that has like our population, we're like a, a 90% almost vaccinated at this point in time, at least in, in British Columbia, whether or not people who've had, who get infected after being fully vaccinated, do we stop, you know, do we see an attenuation of the number of cases over time. We are seeing this in, in different populations. Like, for example, I mentioned Sweden before, Sweden has, they didn't have a very high vaccination rate when they first got exposed to a high burden of infections earlier this year. But we're seeing cases are quite low in, in Sweden right now. And we're seeing the same thing in places like India. And I think also Japan had this weird, really high and then just plummeted. And we're still trying to understand, you know, what was it that happened? Simply shut down that, that it was a really scary increase um, in cases. And what what is the, the scary part about it is is really around whether there is sufficient resources in in the healthcare system to deal with a high burden of people who need resources in the hospital. But here, I, th- I think we're at a point where things seem to be in, under pretty good control. And and I think now what we really need to do is collect data and look at you know what is the contribution. And we haven't done this here. What is the contribution of an infection-acquired immunity, either alone or in the background of someone who is vaccinated? And can that can we sort of rely on that now more for providing the the protection we need and allowing us to be a little have a little bit more breathing room because we're still all holding our breath at this time. And I think we we overreact every time we hear about you know we're doing this daily case count. And it's not uh, mentally healthy looking at this uh, without context. 
the singular objective that I think we need to drive towards is getting back to living our lives the way we did in the past and and knowing that we're not going to run the risk of our healthcare system collapsing because of this pathogen, right? So from what I've understood from these mRNA vaccines, their effect is good. It would be better than not having them, but it seems like they're always kicking the can down the road. And when we are doubling and tripling down on a solution that is not a permanent solution, to me, it seems like we need to diversify our arsenal a little mm-hmm. bit, right? Exactly. So you mentioned a few things. So I'm, I'm happy that we have these antiviral drugs because at least, you know, that's another angle of being able to attack this disease. But you mentioned a few other vaccines that are I, I haven't heard of before. I can you talk about them a little bit and how they're different from the mRNA vaccines and where they're at? Like, are we likely to get them or unlikely to get them? So the one that's farthest ahead is Covaxin, which just got just a few days ago, got uh, a uh, authorization by the World Health Organization. So it's a recognized, they met all the efficacy and safety endpoints. Seems to have around 70% from what I recall reading from a press release against a Delta variant. It's a whole inactivated vaccine, which really cool adjuvant. I it activates what we call TLR7, TLR8, which is toll-like receptor 7 and 8, which is your endogenous innate immune recognition molecules for viral infections. So it gives the whole dead bug and combines it with a signal to your immune system. This is from a virus. So it can launch, you know, can get that strategy against this, the vaccine, your immune system sort of understands where this, what the problem could be. I like the strategy. I think it's super brilliant. I'm not a fan of these aluminum-based aluminum hydroxide, which is something like Sinovac has that. It's also inactivated. I believe it's made by a Chinese manufacturer. Aluminum hydroxide, and this is where the problem, if you go back in the development manufacturing of vaccines, you know, alum was part of what we called Freud's adjuvant. And it's a little bit became, you know, once something gets known as being an adjuvant, then it gets used, but it's not really an adjuvant. Those those vaccines were using bacterial vaccines with dead bacteria. And the aluminum interacted and made the components of bacterial outer cell membranes, which include lipopolysaturins, all these things that are not present in the viruses. But it beca- because it became known as part of an adjuvant, people just added to a dead bug and call it an adjuvant when it doesn't really function very well as such. In Sorry, can you define that term? Uh, oh, adjuvant. adjuvant. So adjuvant is something that's added to a vaccine that makes it more immunogenic to your immune system that it activates. If you just give dead proteins, you know, like what a, a dead virus would be, your immune system won't really be launching a very strong immune response to it. So there has to be something that is give some sort of signal, like a danger signal, that this is from a bug. So the best one to give danger signal are those pathogen-associated patterns that typically go along with that kind of infection. So the one that Covaxin, this it's an from an Bharat Biotech, which is an in Indian biotech company, and and they uh, actually took the adjuvant that was a new formulation from an American biotech. It was, uh, I believe, it was actually partly funded through the NIH program uh, a while ago. So it's a really cool new adjuvant that is really effective, I, I think, or a smart strategy. I wouldn't say effective because that time will tell about its, its efficacy as, as we roll out. But in terms of strategy and, and innovation, it is really smart because it triggers an 
that stimulant, that coactivation, that that immunogenic component to it that would come from a virus, typically from a viral infection. So the Archivant is a really important thing because what we know from historically, for example, we had kids get RSV infection, respiratory infection. And and I recall they were trying a number of vaccines had failed. And the reason they failed is because they didn't have a good adjuvant that activated that innate immune stimulation that gave long-term adaptive immune support to the vaccination. So they, they recognized if they put in the right adjuvant, then they could get that affinity maturation and long-term immunity uh, to the vaccine. So the adjuvant to me is actually the critical component um, of it. And I don't know what part of many of these nucleic acid delivery platforms would function as an adjuvant for that long-term. So Covaxin is one of them. I like the fact that it's a whole inactivated one because it has multiple antigenic epitopes. So I think if you wanted to vaccinate someone who's already had COVID, this would be the perfect thing because you would be activating all of the different antigens as opposed to one under selective pressure, right? And so that would be just thinking strategically, that would be the best approach. The other one that I would say Covaxin has been approved by the World Health Organization. And it in July of, of this year, they had actually put in a submission to Health Canada for for approval. Now, that doesn't mean even if Health Canada approves it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the, they'll procure it. So we, we procured a lot of these, the same sort of new platforms, but we the only old school type of vaccine that it seems like Canada has intention so far of procuring is Novavax. And Novavax is a subunit vaccine. You can think of it like a processed version of the whole uh, vaccine where they, they express the some viral protein. And it's also focused largely on the spike protein. And I believe it's a really interesting technology because I believe they have these expressed in moth cells for the proteins. And then they purify the, the viral protein and they add a, a, an adjuvant called saponin, which is from a plant. Uh, it's not an antiviral. It's not, it's not, I don't favor it as much. If I have favorites, I, I have a favorite with Covaxin and Valneva I will talk about next. So those are my favorite, but Novavax to me is more traditional type of vaccines. And, and maybe, you know, maybe our trials in younger people should be using no, uh, Novavax as opposed to some of these mRNA-based technology, given what is known about their adverse effects. And lastly is, is Valneva, which I really, I like. I like Velneva a lot. Velneva is a French biotech, I believe, and they had co-produced this with the UK National Institute of Health. This vaccine, it also has a really smart adjuvant, so that anti- the immunogenic component of it, it's called CPG. So it, it's, so it activates the type of immune response. We've been using CPG for activating the immune system to give both an antiviral as well as anti-cancer immune response, so for intracellular things. And I think it's a really brilliant formulation. And they did a non-inferiority test against AstraZeneca in the UK, I believe it was. And they showed that their T-cell and B-cell response was significantly better than the AstraZeneca vaccine. It's just, it takes, it's quite... uh, it's quite courageous of them to do a non-inferiority trial. So what that means is you're taking something that's approved and you're showing yours is actually better as opposed to a placebo, which has no effect. Like your the bar is set a little bit higher. So they they had po- you know promising results from that, and they're also a whole inactivated platform, old school, but with a really smart adjuvant. So both Valneva and I think Covaxin um, 
look like you know if i if i had favorites th- those would be it <laughs> and and we can predict yeah we understand how these work uh, a little bit better than some of these nucleic acid delivery platforms which might work uh, you know maybe in different age groups where you know the the thing is the traditional platforms with these arjavans they actually use up a lot of your resources. Like you, they induce what we call myelopoiesis. There's a large amount of immune mobilization and energy that occurs. You get a bit of fever. So that's really good for if you're young and healthy and have those resources. Perhaps if you're frailer and older, maybe you don't want to elicit such a strong immune mobilization. And maybe that's where the, the mRNA-based vaccines, which don't stimulate that kind of uh, whole immune activation would would work as you know i can i can see that in older people they might not have the resources in their body to to go all out like that but for young people it's it's a lot better for your i think for for activating an antiviral response so it sounds like we could have a multi-pronged approach where you know we have these mrna vaccines that elicit a bit of a weaker response and we can give those to the people that are more would be more vulnerable and we could have would it be actually be a sterilizing immunity for with these other vaccines that are coming down for for the rest of the population yeah so the evidence on that is is not known my prediction would be no and primarily it's because we're injecting it i think when we take it intranasal like live attenuated like the flu mist that would be more sterilizing um, because the route of administration you need to like have iga and all these sort of mucosal immunity prime to neutralize where the the virus enters and replicates that's where the viral viral load is really high anytime you're injecting things for a respiratory uh, infection, um, I think, will not give you optimal sterilizing immunity for very, at least for very. That's very long lived, and so I think you know if we were if we were smart and had a strategy and saying, oh, you know, when we have a, a respiratory virus, this is the type of vaccine we should be making. You know, we should have that in house. I think one of the problems with, with Canada, we don't have any money. We're very much reliant for other people to produce our stuff. You know, we're not using our the knowledge base that we have. It's not very strategic. So uh, if that's why I think if Canada sort of invested in its own for things that are critical for, you know, life and death things, we should have our own manufacturing. We should have scientists who know what's the best type of vaccine should be, you know, it's not rocket science. Anyone can think about it. Say, oh, of course we were on a live attenuated internasal vaccine. And we have enough of our, you know, we can, it's for gene therapy. We have the technology now, especially with CRISPR and all these other tools where we can make attenuated vaccines a lot easier instead of like doing it the old school way. We can really expedite that if that's where we wanted to put our resources. And I think it makes sense. I think overall we're with our population increasing, we can see that this is becoming, you know, I think economically it, it might make more sense now, especially when we're seeing infectious threats can, you know, sort of put a halt on global economic activity that maybe they'll say, Oh, you know, it might make sense to invest in this at this time. And, you know, Canada is positioned to do that if that's where we wish to put our energy. Yeah, well, hopefully by the time the next pandemic rolls around, we'll have some capacity to respond to it a little bit in-house. <laughs> yeah, I think the problem really is, you know, coming from both academia and industry in, in Canada, 
One of the frustrating things is like one is the investment concept. They're, you know, they need to incentivize investment into the biotech uh, community like they do with the fossil fuel industries or or mining where they have flow through shares and stuff that they make it really attractive to invest in it. And we don't do that for for these more knowledge type of economies. The other problem is, is that all government programs are so short-lived. You have to be at the right time, at the right place. There's no long-term, because as soon as the government changes, then the priorities change, and then it goes away. You need to invest for a long-term in this, in these sort of sectors. We're very well-positioned because of the expertise. You know, we have people who go to university for a long period of time. We have all that stuff. What we don't have is the ecosystem. Like we, there is in, for example, Silicon Valley or in, in the Boston area, they've uh, really built a really uh, thriving ecosystem for, for tech and biotech. And, and I think that's for the future, especially now listening to you know the, the climate change meetings and everything. We can't be reliant on bitumen for the rest of our lives for for you know the basis of our economy and if we put that 14 billion dollars that went to that trans mountain pipeline into something like the biotech sector and and manufacturing biopharmaceuticals we would be so much better off and better positioned moving forward for the future economy but i'm biased obviously (laughs) (laughs) i will say that (laughs) Yeah, Trish, do you have any any other no, questions? I, I learned so much today. This was so interesting talking with you. I, you know, it's always just such a treat to be able to speak with such a careful thinker. And I, I feel like I'm excited already to go back and listen to it again and really try and absorb because it was <laughs> it was a lot of information. And thank you so much. It was so educational. I think what you guys are doing is great. Like going out and and really speaking about things that you're interested in. That's that's the joy of life, isn't it? That's the plan. Yeah, that's why we started this. Yeah, listen, thanks so much for taking the time. I really enjoyed this. And hopefully it'll make a little bit of a dent, one can hope, into into bringing a little bit of perspective to more people, especially in Canada, because I feel like, you know, a lot of people here have lost the plot on uh, what's important and uh, what's actually going on. So yeah, really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to speaking with us. No, it was a pleasure. And I, and I love the fact that people are having open discussions and having other thoughts uh, about what's happening in different narratives, because I think having different perspectives is so critical and we can't be putting ourselves into a little uh, rabbit hole and, and not looking at the big picture. And I think, you know, it's kudos to you for bringing out, thinking about all these different aspects and, and bringing out different perspectives. So, so thank you. So listeners, if you want to pause the episode at this point and take a little breather, this would be a good point. Having just talked to Dr. Callian for the last little bit, there was a lot to process there. And for the next little bit, Trish and I will just have a little bit of a debrief. Yeah, congratulations to making it through all that. That was a lot of information, but Dr. Callian just knows her stuff and it was really it was she packed a lot into that. Yeah. So what did you think? What grabbed your attention more than anything else? Well, there was a lot there that I wish that we could just spend another hour going through <laughs> everything she talked about, but I think we're going to try and keep it short. One of the biggest things that stuck out to me was that basically I had been treating this mRNA vaccine in my head the same way I had thought of previous vaccines in that 
when I get a tetanus vaccine, that means that I'm not going to get tetanus in the future. And it seems like these mRNA vaccines are very useful in that they keep people from getting really sick, but they don't necessarily prevent you from getting sick at all. So I kind of like in my head have reframed COVID in that probably we should all expect to get COVID at some point, whether we're vaccinated or not. And this is okay because these vaccines will keep us from getting really sick and ending up in the hospital. And hopefully it'll just be a little low level thing. So I think that this fear and kind of wanting to avoid COVID at all costs and, you know, don't go to any weddings, don't see any friends, stay really locked down. I don't think that that's a useful mentality. And I think that we need to say like, it's out there. We're probably going to get it. But if you're vaccinated, you're fine. And so, yeah, just it was a little bit of a mental, my mindset has shifted a bit. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And that's, I think, one of the main things that I feel like our public health and public communication on this has been lacking on. Like we talked about in the in the discussion with Dr. Callian, this thing is not going away. The prospect of getting to COVID zero is off the table at this point. So you are going to be exposed to it. You're probably going to be exposed to it multiple times in your lifetime, just like when you're exposed to the flu virus every year. And that's fine. For most of us, that'll be okay. And with the vaccines that we have, which is actually a bit of a misnomer. I don't think given how we know they work at this point, we can't really call them vaccines because they do that word kind of sets a certain expectation. It's which, true. It's true. Which these ones don't really fulfill. They are a little bit of a different tool kit or exactly. like a little different tool in our toolbox than the vaccines. It, right. That's a very good point to make. And they do confer protection. And so having been vaccinated, you're probably better equipped to get infected by COVID, which you will. Again, it's just a matter of when, not a matter of if. But yeah, I think we need to be a lot more honest about that reality on the ground. And I think a lot of people, because of the way that we have responded to this virus, which again, made sense in March of 2020, when you didn't know what you were dealing with, but we know what we're dealing with now. But because of that response, a lot of people are so petrified of this disease. And like like Dr. Callian said, the reality of the risk doesn't fit the terror that a lot of people are feeling the fear is mismatched exactly yeah no i think i think that's true and i think that you know people should try and get back to things that are healthy and make life fulfilling and not sit home just in fear and crippling anxiety that would be a good segue sort of talking about the fear mismatch into these mandates right So the mandates are where I get quite worked up about what we're doing. So in in my mind, these vaccines, they are experimental treatments. There is a lot of good reason to be concerned. And this is, again, one of those uh, reasons we're recording this debrief a few days after having talked to Dr. Kellyan. In that time, Taiwan has taken the Pfizer vaccine They've removed the second dose for uh, children aged 12 to 17 because of the risks of myocarditis and pericarditis that they that they pose. And so it's like the longer you wait, the more you're learning about it. And we are learning about these side effects that we learned about after millions of people got these vaccines. We didn't know what they what these side effects were, right? So to me, 
when people are concerned about it, that's a very legitimate concern. When they think that, okay, this was an emergency use authorization, we don't know the long-term effects, they are correct. Now, in a situation where 87% of the people were willing to voluntarily take this up, spending our political capital on coercing the remaining 13% to get that vaccine, to me, seems like a very, very foolish expenditure. And it just breeds mistrust And I think justifiably so. In an earlier conversation, you put it away, I really liked, is this how we want to be expending political capital? Exactly. To sort of, and like, what is the goal of all that? Is it going to make a huge difference epidemiologically if we get that last, I think now it's even like less than 10% vaccinated, is a really good point. And just to be clear, because I feel like as much as we're trying to be very clear with what we are saying, I think it's also worth being really clear saying what we're not saying. I don't think that we are anti-mandates as a matter of principle. Right. Yeah. So I had this conversation with a few friends when the mandates first came out. And one of my friends asked a really good question, which is, okay, if you're against these, then under what situation would you be for a mandate, right? And there is the point is that there is a situation where mandates would make sense. You can't just make a blanket statement that, the, no, the government f- should at no point be able to mandate something like this, right? And there, at the, if you imagine a graph where one axis is severity of illness and another axis is effectiveness of the cure, there's probably a line on that graph past which it absolutely makes sense to, to mandate vaccines or any kind of medical procedure and below which it does not. The reality of this virus is we are far on the kind of the lower end of both of those measures. So I heard historian Neil Ferguson talk on a a podcast with Barry Weiss where he was making the point that if you look at the death toll from this pandemic and compare it to the pandemics that we know about historically, it doesn't even rank in the top 10, right? This is a very mild pandemic. Whereas if you look at the economic impact from our response to it, it's right up there with the Great Depression. So our response to this has been quite disproportionate. And we kind of keep doubling down. One of the reasons why I thought it was really important for us to have this conversation is because I think in Canada, uniquely, we're in a situation where if you hear, if you see, for example, on Twitter, a hashtag trending that wants, that is calling for, say, fired Bonnie Henry, the reason for that hashtag is like completely the opposite of the American response. If we're calling for our public health officials to be fired is because they haven't put enough restrictions in or they have lifted restrictions too fast. So the Canadian public, for whatever reason, seems to be clamoring for more and more measures and that's to me that's really disturbing i don't know how we got here there seems to be a lot of terror like we talked about and people just want to keep doubling down on these measures that really there's no they're uncalled for yeah i don't think that there's good evidence that they would accomplish what people think they would accomplish i think that people think that if you keep locking down harder and harder you're going to get to covid zero and you guys like that i hope we put that to rest like that's a pipe dream it's never going to happen it's here to stay we need to like reframe how we think of this it's you're going to get covid but like we've got some good tools in our toolkit now so that it doesn't kill you <laughs> like that's a really good thing yeah and to be clear also there is that age discrepancy as well so some people are more at risk than others so i think th- I think it's it's one of those situations where there is a problem, 
there is no great solution here. Right. But it's really hard for people to admit that when we have a problem, we don't actually have a great solution. That's the reality. Sometimes that you have a problem and you don't actually have a great solution to it. And this is one of those times. So Dr. Callian mentioned some other tools that we can use to diversify our portfolio of responding to COVID. Those tools... It'd be nice if they were around. They're not around at the moment. But that doesn't mean you just grab anything and try to throw it at the at the problem and it's going to go away. It doesn't necessarily do anything, right? Yeah, and I think that this is like another important thing too is because, you know, pushing through experimental treatments and like these, is it nucleic delivery devices? Is that the term she used for these mRNA vaccines? I think that these have been a lifesaver in you know the early days of this pandemic when it was going crazy but like now we we have a lot more data we understand a lot more things about this disease and we know a lot more about these vaccines saying that you we should take a minute and look at the science before we proceed with you know like a lot of boosters or like giving it to every kid in the world that doesn't make you like anti-vax that's just saying that we should always be pushing the bar towards safer and like that should that should just always be the way that we are trending. It's like we have something that's pretty good, but that doesn't mean we can't make something better. We can't make something safer. We don't need to get political where we start like crucifying people for being like, this is kind of experimental. And there's all sorts of weird side effects cropping up. And like, maybe we're not comfortable with this. Like, we can all just be rational, I think. Yeah, especially with vaccinating children. This is just bonkers to me. If our goal is to make sure we reduce the... Uh, loads in hospitals vaccinating children is not going to be the thing that gets us there that's not the solution we know that vaccines don't really help transmission they are still experimental they are still in the early days and children just don't have the risk to warrant giving them a medical procedure whose side effects and long-term effects we don't really understand yeah i think that we have enough breathing room here to kind of look at some of these you know, side effects and look at who's being hospitalized, we can be more targeted. A big thing that I just took from this as well, and this is a lot of the stuff that we have talked about with some of the books we've read, is just wanting public policy that is science-based and data-driven. And I feel like it's more about a narrative now of like, showing you're like with the good guys to like get saying you'd get as many boosters as you possibly need like this is this is me like getting a little bit contrarian i'm not even against boosters or anything but i just i want data to be presented in a way that's clear and honest and not presented in a way that's trying to get you to do something to fall in line with right. a narrative. A good example of this is, is I was look, just looking on the CDC's website, what they were saying, you know, the risks of dying were from, from COVID. Okay. And the way that they presented it, I thought was really annoying because, or sorry, it wasn't even dying. It was just hospitalization and death by age. And the way they presented, it, so 18 to 29 is like the reference group. And instead of saying it's like, oh, there's this like percentage of the population that gets it and ends up being hospitalized, it has whether you are one time, two times, four times, 200 times more likely to be hospitalized than an 18 to 29 year old. And this was exactly what Dr. Callian was talking about, which is relative risk versus actual risk. Like, I feel like this is presented in a way that looks scary. So if you say you're like 40 to 49, they say you're 10 times more likely to die from COVID than an 18 to 29-year-old. Like, that sounds much scarier, but I think that it's not necessarily a good way to represent risk. 
Yeah, I think. Well, I mean, in this situation, it could be that if the if the risk to eighteen to twenty nine year olds is really really low, then a big number multiplied by a really small number. I mean, that could be anywhere, right? Well, if that's what I mean. Like, depend. so if you're at like point zero one percent risk of dying, ten times that would be like point one, exactly. right? These are things that frustrate me. And I would like to see better transparency on like how data is collected, what's in that data set. Science should be completely nonpartisan and just truth seeking. That's the thing that really grinds my gears is when there we've got two political sides that are, I mean, in Canada, really, we don't have two political sides. We always only have one political side for the most part. But there is a narrative and it's not just that it's a narrative, which is bad enough. It's that it pretends that it's a science-based narrative, which it is not. And that's one of the things that I wanted to clear up with this episode. The science we have, if you read the papers that are coming out on the subject, if you look at the data that people are collecting, it does not warrant the public policy that pretends to be science-based. Yeah. And I hope we got that across. Well, they were never clear with what the ends were. You know what I mean? It's like we put in a big two-week quarantine for people entering the country. I would have liked to have seen something that they're like, oh, well, if we model it, we think we're going to keep this much COVID out or whatever. Or does that even not matter? Because it turns out the vast majority of people are coming in for like essential reasons, which was the case. It didn't keep the Delta variant out. It didn't keep COVID out. A lot of this stuff to me seemed like incredible wastes of money really inconvenient for you know families who are separated yeah i think some of our policies right now are definitely i mean you're right the the quarantine hotels were i mean that's the easiest one to pick on because it was so obviously ridiculous yeah but even some of the ones right now so at the same time that these vaccine mandates came into effect in british columbia we also had a renewed mask mandate so early in the pandemic we had a mask mandate for public spaces and then it was removed and then it got reinstated for at, at the latest wave and early on it kind of made sense because we were supposed to be masking up indoors and we know it's airborne we know it's airborne we're supposed to wear masks to prevent it and at that time we we're also supposed to keep distance so a lot of indoor spaces like restaurants and cafes were running at 50% capacity where the tables were supposed to be a certain distance from each other with these latest rules, there is no distance. So I can go to a restaurant, I can sit elbow to elbow, and I have done this, with other patrons that are there. And the minute I stand up from my chair, I have to put a mask on. As long as I'm sitting, it's okay. But the minute I stand up, I have to put a mask on. And so this is just, you know those pictures of you know back in the medieval times when the Black Plague was ravaging through Europe? And they had these quote-unquote doctors that were wearing uh, bird costumes and they were meant to keep the juju away. Mm-hmm. That's what masks are for <laughs> us right now because they're not. we're not using them in any way that would be remotely effective. At least not on airplanes and in restaurants and stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's not that masks wouldn't work. It's just... You have to use them properly. Yeah, the rules we're setting, they're not meant to actually prevent transmission of the virus. Right. And... And I mean, to kind of go back to the point of people are just afraid of this and they're kind of throwing anything they can at it. We're still kind of going through this like security theater of sanitizing everything, which I'm not against, you know, sanitize it. It's probably better if <laughs> hygiene it's Hygiene theater. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> hygiene theater, yeah. But 
again, like we learned this months ago that this thing was airborne, right? And if we wanted to make some real difference, we would be, you know, the government should be subsidizing restaurants to fix their ventilation and filtration systems. That's such a good point. Yeah. So is there anything else you wanted to add? I mean, there was so much to talk about there. I wish we could have a bigger debrief. I learned a ton about how vaccines work and... The human immune system. Yeah, I think it was super interesting. And uh, listeners, I hope you took away as much from this conversation as we did. This is a rapidly evolving situation, hopefully no pun intended. I'm sure we're going to come back to this and maybe do another episode. The current vaccine passports are supposed to be up for renewal at the end of January, I believe. But they're kind of indefinitely subject to renewal. So there's really no clear end date. So we'll see where we are then. And hopefully Bonnie Henry doesn't close any ski hills on us this year. (laughs) All right. Thanks, listeners. We'll talk soon. Bye-bye. Listeners, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. We always appreciate your support. Please subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. If you use Twitter, follow us there at FreshLensPod. Finally, we always love to hear your feedback. Our email address is hello at freshlenspodcast.com. <laughs>